0: take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 103. This is the last Sunday for a while we'll be in the book of Psalms. We'll be in the book of James next week as we start our fall quarter, Psalm 103. As we worship the Lord, it's important for us to ask, what kind of worship is fitting for God? kind of worship is fitting for a king? How should we prepare ourselves, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our souls before we come before the presence of the Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth, who loved us so much He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins? How should we prepare ourselves, and how should we worship we're not the first people to ask what worship is fitting for God. This kind of question has been in the mind of God-fearers for a long time. In fact, when speaking to the woman at the well in John 4, Jesus speaks to this woman, and she has a debate, actually. She brings up a debate question that has been going around in their, in their circles. Uh, G, she says, is it right to worship here or there? Is the place?" matter. And Jesus redirects her attention, and He says in John 4, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not about on this mountain or on that mountain. It's about worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him, true worshipers. This is fascinating. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. You see how God is, is seeking people to worship Him. He desires us to worship Him properly in spirit and in truth. And it's my, it's my thought, it's my observation that many Christians have, haven't a clue or don't desire to worship God. or They may desire, but they don't take the time to worship God properly. We don't take seriously what it is to worship the Lord, to give offerings. To, okay, that's what worship is. It's an offering to God. We come bringing Him a gift and gifts, as a rule, should be to the liking of the person you are giving the gift to. I think all parents here have been in a scenario where your children have given you a gift that obviously something that they would have liked to have for themselves. One of my kids one time gave me a, one of those rubber things that has the little poppers on it. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. All the kids know what I'm talking about. And I I thought it was really neat. In fact, I still have it. I still, I don't play with it. But they were so excited and ecstatic for me because in their mind, that is like a very desirable gift. I had never really seen one before. Oh, this is kind of neat. Okay, that's interesting. It was something that they wanted, and so they bought it for me. And I think a lot of Christians treat worship of God that way. Well, what do I want? Let me bring it to God. That isn't how God desires we worship him, though. When we worship the Lord, we have to ask our first question is, what does God want of me? what does God want from me as an offering? It matters less, I think, what we want to give to God and more of what He wants us to give Him in worship. So God has given us a pattern psalm here in Psalm 103, and every aspect of worship is incredibly important. We cannot allow ourselves to be out of balance, and we'll see the balance we have here of these three sections of Psalm 103 that gives us a pattern that we should follow as we worship the Lord. Why don't we come before Him in prayer, ask for His blessing, and then we'll dive into this passage. Lord, we thank You for giving us these patterns of worship. I pray, God, that we would worship you with all of our being. With everything we have, may we give honor and praise to you. We thank you for this time we have, this special moment of the week we've set aside to worship. And so, Father, as we now look into your word as part of our worship, may our hearts become uh, united with your desires for us. May we set aside our own ambitions and desires and, f- and fall into your grace, into your pattern for our living, Lord, uh, submitting ourselves to You. Thank You for the salvation we have through Jesus and for the hope we have through Him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 103, as you look at this passage, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Worship must come from the inner man. It must be personal worship, That's the kind of worship that honors God. It's not enough to be formally worshiping God. You need to be personally worshiping God. You come in here ready to worship God. You might look nice. You might have shaved this morning. You might put on your nice perfume. You might have made sure both shoes match. You came in here with with a purpose, but if you have all the things put together, but your heart is far from God, you are not worshiping. Personal worship is essential. You look at this, that David calls to his own heart. This is a psalm of David. You see it there at the superscript. There's a psalm from King David. He calls to his own heart and soul. It is a personal worship, and it is wholehearted praise. That's where we begin, wholehearted praise. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. He talks to himself here. He's commanding himself, obeying all my inmost being. There's a need for us to speak to ourselves. Too many of us are listening to ourselves. We're not speaking truth to ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves and say, Praise God. Listen, soul, you don't feel good today. Bless the Lord. Listen, you're feeling down today. Bless the Lord oh, my soul, and all that is within me. You don't feel like worshiping often. It's a struggle sometimes to worship God in our inmost man. We come to God half-heartedly. And if that's your problem, talk to yourself. Speak to yourself. Encourage yourself. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Say good things about God. That's what bless means and do that with wholehearted praise, all that's within me, all of my innermost being. I think the most important part of as we worship is what's going on in your heart right now. That's much more important than what's going on on your face or what's going on in your, and on the outside. God, is, God cares about the personal worship that's happening in our heart, and there should be nothing holding you back. All that's within me, praises holy name. Is there something about your inner life today that holds you back from praising God like you should? You need to confess that to God. Bless his holy name. What are we praising? What are we blessing when we praise the name of God? We're praising His character. We're praising His attributes. When it says, "Praise the name of the Lord," we sing that several times. "Blessed be the name of the Lord" is one of our songs today. The name of God is is more than just His His name, like you would say Marshall or you would say Bob or you would say Tom, All right? The name of God is the essence of who He is. Like we talk about in the Book of Proverbs, a good name is to be chosen. Rather than great riches, a good reputation. We talk about the name of the Lord; it's shorthand for the person of the Lord. In fact, if you talk to a Jewish person today, when I talk about the Lord, I would use words like God. I'll use words like Jehovah or Yahweh to his covenant name. I would use words like the Lord, which is the the Greek word Kurios, which is the word that represents his covenant name in the Bible. I would say I would use those kinds of phrases. If you talk to a Jewish person, they will not use the Lord's covenant name, Jehovah, because they are afraid of taking His name in vain. That's a very serious offense. And so what they say is they say Hashem, which is the name. They call Him the name. So when we say, plus the name of the Lord, that is praise God, praise Him and His attributes. We're to have wholehearted praise. There's some people here who need to be willing to dig deep and ask yourself a very, very stirring question. Why is it that I am not wholeheartedly praising God today? What is it about my heart that is holding me back? What am I afraid of? What am I embarrassed about? What has gone wrong with me that I am not have wholehearted praise? Secondly, there's grateful praise. There's a role here remembering becomes very important to us. He remembers, he lists all the ways God has benefited him, all the ways God has doted on him. Look at these verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget his benefits. Don't forget his blessings. He lists them in verse 3 through 5, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so your youth is renewed like the eagles. There's benefits, things done for our sake. What a way of praising God. You think back of all the ways God has been good to you. You say, God, you are so good. You have forgiven me of all my sin. What a praise to give to God. No matter how bad your sin is, you can be forgiven. People carry the guilt in their life and they have not trusted Christ. They have not given that sin to God. You have a right. You should feel guilty. But when Jesus takes that sin from you and he bears it on his shoulders and he dies on the cross for your sins and those sins are paid for once and for all and he gives you forgiveness, you do not need to carry that burden any longer. We are forgiven all of our iniquities. There's not not a sin you can commit that God cannot forgive. God forgives all our iniquities. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we have a perfect propitiation and a perfect advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Secondly, He heals all your diseases. We live in a fallen world. We're fragile. We're weak. We're sick. We're broken. I was, I've been keeping up with several people in the church who've had the sickness rolling through their house. It's like a domino, you know, dad gets sick, then mom gets sick, then the kids get sick. It's like, it's like once one person gets sick, it's going to be three weeks, right? <laughs> Here we go. As a reminder of how fragile we are, that a little virus you can't even see can knock you out. We are fragile, weak people, and we have illnesses. And some people have terminal illnesses. They say, I'm going to have this illness till I die. Some people say, I have this disease. I have this problem. I'm going to have it till, you know, God will heal all of our diseases, when we're glorified in our bodies, we have the glorified God-given body. When we are fully redeemed by God, when your body is given that glorified body, you will not have any of those diseases anymore. Praise God. He promises to heal all of your diseases because diseases come from the fall and from sin. It's going to be done away with, and God promises these will be healed. he redeems your life from destruction your life is headed towards destruction it's like you're headed straight long straight way into getting ready to hurl yourself off of a cliff and god grabs you and pulls you back he rescues you he redeems you and the new testament teaches us this redemption is provided through the precious blood of jesus christ like a lamb without blemish without spot his work on the cross and he crowns you with loving kindness that's covenant love and tender mercies, you know, a crown is an instrument of honor it's an instrument of blessing. it's God's way of showing you how much he loves you. He crowns you, He makes promises to you. He makes promises to you, He enters into covenant with you. The new covenant we have through God it's, it's just wonderful through Jesus Christ. and this last one fascinates me. He says he satisfies your mouth with good things. I don't know if you've thought too much about this, but God loves you so much that He made food enjoyable. You know, God didn't have to do that. Food doesn't have to be. God could have said, you know what, when I create people, they have to have energy coming in, and I'm going to make it just, you know, every once in a while, you've got to stop for a second, and you've got to, like, put some some stuff in your face. He could have done that. But God loves you so much, He says, I'm going to make flavors. And I'm going to create uh, all of these things that grow from the ground and little things that hop and jump around <laughs> that taste really good. <laughs> and I'm going, to, I'm going to create food that works together, that gives pleasure to people, that God satisfies your mouth. Part of the blessing of the new land. When he said, you're going to walk into the promised land, it's going to be a land of what? Milk and Honey. Things that are pleasant to the taste, which you don't have to work for. Milk, you don't have to work for that. It comes from a cow. Honey, you don't have to work for that. It comes from a bee. You're not generating that. It comes from other things. God blesses you. God blesses you. Every time you eat, you should give thanks to God. Not just because it's what you do. Not just because you're teaching your kids. Why should you give thanks to God? Because he made food good, and he made it for you. And you should never lose sight of that, that God made food pleasurable. He satisfies your mouth with good things so you can be renewed in your spirit, so you can have energy to go through the day. I mean, it's important for us to thank God for how good he is for us, and it comes from a personal place. And it must start there, but then it moves on to being God-centered. And this is so key, that all worship must be at its heart. It must be personal, but it must be God-focused. It has to be focused on the Lord. I I might say God-centered worship. You might think to yourself, what other kind of worship is there? Well, there's all kinds. There's worship that tickles the ear, worship that honors man, worship that delights man, worship that caters itself to the fickle desires of man. There's either God-centered worship or there's people-centered worship. You can't have it both ways. We we must be God-focused, and we focus on the greatness of God. We make Him the center of our worship. We focus either on Him or on ourselves and what makes us or some other person the center of worship. So worship that honors God speaks highly of God and talks about how great He is. So let's talk about how great God is. This is part of the wonderful part of worship here as we look at His character traits starting in verse 6. Who is our God who we worship? Well, first, He's a God of justice. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Our God does or makes righteousness. He makes sure that it takes place. Everyone who is oppressed by other men, when you find yourself In a position where you are powerless and someone with power has treated you poorly, violating God's law and oppressing you, God will make that right. God executes justice and righteousness. There are powerful people who remove justice. That's the equal application of the law. They remove this. They are not honest. But we can't always rely on people to treat us the right way. People are corrupt and you will be mistreated in this life. But God, says here, brings justice for those who are oppressed. He's also a God of revelation. Look at verse 7, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. God is a God who reveals Himself. He is a God of revelation. God does not stand afar off saying, I hope you get it right, He's not playing 21 questions with us saying, do your best. Figure it out. God comes to us. He's a God at hand. I love this verse from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23. God is speaking. He says, am I, not a God? am I a God near at hand? Says the Lord, not a God far off. I'm here. I'm close. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him? Says the Lord. Don't I fill heaven and earth? God fills heaven and earth and he's close by at the same time. And in Psalm 19, we have the word of God. God communicates. He communicates broadly to all people through what we call general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the sky shows his handiwork. Day unto day, they utter speech. Night unto night it reveals knowledge. They don't have speech, they don't have language. Their voice is not heard, but they talk. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then later in that psalm, he goes into the word of God. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the simple to be wise. The statutes of the Lord are right. They make the heart happy. Commandments of the Lord are pure. They enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This passage specifically talks about how the Lord came and spoke to Moses. You see that in verse 7? God made known his way to Moses. And it's possible that what he's, what he's quoting here, what he's referencing, is Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, God proclaims his own attributes. God steps onto the scene, introduces himself. And this is how he does it. In Exodus 34, and the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The name here again, the attributes, the character of God. Here is how he proclaims the name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Pay close attention. The Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's portrait of how he reveals himself. What a powerful God of revelation. Aren't we grateful that our Lord has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word? We are so thankful for that. He's a God of justice, a God of revelation, also a God of forgiveness. <clears throat> Look at the description here. He says, I am merciful and gracious, probably referencing Exodus 34. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Once again, he mentions his covenant love. He's merciful towards me. He's gracious towards me. When I am wicked, he, has, he is slow to anger. He abounds in mercy. He is not quick-tempered. God is not quick tempered, all these attributes are directed towards me, a weak, sinful, wayward child. God is merciful with me, and I am so, so happy that is the case, that God is merciful with me. And I know that you would say the same, God is merciful. Also, look at this, that God places a limit on His striving with men in verse 9. It says, He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, says He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. That's a good translation, this idea. The emphasis here is the limit God places on His anger. He places a limit on Himself. He is an unlimited, He is an infinite God. He has the right and the authority to never end His striving or never end His anger against us, but God has chosen to limit and show mercy to us. Aren't we thankful for that? You keep going. You see that He chooses mercy in verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. What do you deserve? We, we who are sinners so quickly downplay our sin, we say, wasn't that big of a deal? We hear about the wrath of God, and we say, it seems like He overreacted. Friend, if you understood the severity of your sin, you would understand that, in fact, God is not overreacting. God is a God of mercy. He holds back what you deserve. Some folks here at church, every time I say, hi, how you doing? They say, I'm better than I deserve. You know who you are. I think that's great because it keeps reminding us that I don't deserve the great good gifts of God. God is so gracious to us. He's given us so much. He has not dealt with us according to our sin, but He deals with us according to His mercy. He does not punish us according to our iniquities. He shows mercy towards us. There's also in verses 11 through 13 the comparisons. We have several comparisons here, superlatives three comparisons where it's interesting the first line of these comparisons gives us the comparison the second line identifies the character trait and so we'll read it's helpful sometimes to flip these around and read the second line first and then the first why don't we try that he says so great is his mercy towards those who fear him as the heavens are high above the earth what does that mean god's mercy is so great towards those who fear him have you ever gone outside and wondered how high the sky is i have I did this week. I was reading this verse and I was outside. I was actually outside of my house working on this verse. I don't know why I was sitting outside. It was like 100 degrees. I think it's had something to do with the noise in my house. I had to go outside and I was sitting there and I was looking at this verse and I thought, as the heavens are above the earth, so is God's mercy. How do the heavens relate to God's mercy, there's a couple ways. One is it's unfathomably high. I cannot imagine how high the sky is. I mean, how do you even do that? How do you, I'm sure somebody in here as an engineer could figure it out. But like, as a person standing on the earth looking at the sky, it's just unfathomable. And the second thing is that it blankets the entire earth. The sky is everywhere over the earth. And God's mercy, it doesn't say as, it's as high as that. It says, as it is high, so is God's mercy. I think he's also saying that, that just, as, just as the sky blankets the, the ground, God's mercy blankets us. It, it is all-encompassing. It is everywhere. You cannot escape it. God's mercy is so profound and so great. But it's only, notice who? It's not, it's not on every single creature just on those who fear him. See, there's a real danger that that, that all, all creatures of God, not all, every person will experience the mercy of God because some people have rejected the mercy of God or have not believed in Christ Jesus. And by rejecting the fear of the Lord, by rejecting him, they have removed themselves. They have, they said, no, thank you. God's mercy is towards those who fear him, it says in verse 11. Keep going. We also see his forgiveness. Let's read the second line first and the first. He says, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, as far as the east is from the west. So so the east and the west, they cannot, if if you say how far is the east is from the west, you can't measure that because the east just keeps going. He didn't say the north and the south. The north and the south have terminal points, don't they? There's a north pole, there's a south pole. You can get to a point where you are at the south, like you're there. (laughs) Any step is north. You can't get to a place where you're in the east and every step is west. You could always go further east. You could always go further west. And he says, God has, God has forgiven you, and he's removed your sins far from you as the east is from the west. He has taken your sins that cling to you, that, that, that damage you, that, that, that uh, make you dirty, and he has cleaned you and separated these from you and removed these as far as the east is from the west. There is no fixed point further than east from west. It's absolutely immeasurable. And that's what God has done. God's forgiveness is final. When God forgives, his forgiveness is complete if he has forgiven you, no condemnation from Satan or others or yourself can stand because you've been forgiven by the ultimate judge, the ultimate king, God. Amen. There's no the people who, who condemn themselves, who think poorly of themselves, who allow Satan to say lies to them, who allow friends to condemn them. God has forgiven you. He has the final word. He has removed these sins from you. Look at this last comparison, this, this comparison of, of pity. Rather than showing the degree of God's mercy, this verse shows us a picture, an analogy, the kind of pity God has towards us. So the Lord pities those who fear Him as a father pities his children. As a father looks at his children and desires what's good for them, as as he holds them and cares for them, so the Lord pities us. God's forgiveness is granted to those who come in the name of Jesus asking for forgiveness, and those who come to God for forgiveness find Him ready to forgive and to cleanse and to do so completely. What a great God we serve. But before moving on, I must ask you, do you know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus? Have you humbled yourself and called on the name of Jesus Christ to save you from the depths of your sin? Have you been born again? We we need to be born again. We need to have the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us from our sin. We are not born forgiven. You need to come to terms with the fact that you are a sinner and you violated the law of God and you stand condemned by God. He he who is not believed Jesus, the Bible says, is condemned already. You stand condemned, friend, have you not recognized that? And it takes someone recognizing they stand condemned before God, and Jesus has provided that way of salvation. They need to come to Him by faith and receive that gift, and you can have this kind of forgiveness. you're craving this kind of forgiveness, God offers that to those who come to Him through Christ. And 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 then if you keep going, we find we have a God who knows us. Look at verse 14. God is not, He is not unreasonable, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows you. He made you out of dust. He knows you. And man has no hope of his own for permanence. He says in verse 15, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field. So he flourishes. Wind passes over. It's it gone. Its place remembers it no more. There's a passing away-ness to humanity. There is a sense in which we are all here for a very, very short time, and we pass away. Our flesh is gone. Our memory is gone. For very few of us, anyone will remember our name in 200 years. The breath of God blows over us, and we pass away. We're gone, and that should cause us to have a reality check on the God we're worshiping, because yes, we are passing away, but he is permanent. Look at verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. God's covenant love lasts forever. It is not transient like we are. It does not just go away with the breath of the wind. We will pass away. We will be gone and yet god 's mercy endures forever and ever. This is a major theme in this. If you look back at verse four, we talk about who crowns you with loving kindness. Verse eight. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in mercy there 's our word covenant love again, verse eleven. So great is his mercy towards those who fear him. This mercy is on those who fear him god 's mercy is given to those of us. Who fear Him and those who believe Him, the blessings of God will come upon our children and grandchildren as long as they too keep His covenant. What a blessing we have. This is not just a promise for you. This is a promise for people. So we've talked about our personal worship and God-focused worship. These are two major parts of our worship. We must come to God personally humble, and we must come to God uh, exalting Him and promoting Him. And thirdly, I want you to note that we must come to him with submission because submissive worship honors the Lord. And we notice that in this text, verses 19 through 22, we see God as king. Everyone and everything must bow to him. They must serve him. You cannot worship God without serving him as king. You come in here and sing praise to God. You leave and don't worship or don't serve him. You're not worshiping him. To worship Him is to serve Him and to acknowledge His authority. So in these last few verses, we have a chorus of heavenly praise. First, we see His authority established in verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. There's God the King. We worship the One who is King over all. He is the authority. I'm not the authority. You're not the authority. He's the authority. He's the King. And we see His authority acknowledged in verse 20. David casts our attention upward to the heights and the glories of heaven where God is. There He is seated on the throne of power, and the angelic creatures that gather around the throne are worshiping Him and doing His bidding. He calls on these heavenly creatures to worship Him in verse 20. Bless the Lord, you His angels, who excel in strength, who do His word, heeding the voice of of the Lord. He starts first with the angels, the, the messenger spe- beings of God, the spiritual beings who are messengers. They are noted throughout Scripture. They do what God tells them to do. They excel in strength, what strong, beautiful creatures they are. You notice whenever people come into contact with angels, they're not these sweet little things playing a harp, you know, with a little halo, and they're all meek and mild. No, what do people do when they, I mean, strong men, when they see an angel of God, they fall on their face. They're, they are They're humbled. What's fascinating is, other times, angels appear just like men. It's amazing. The angels do whatever God calls them to do. They excel in strength. They obey the Lord. They listen to His voice. God says, go, and they go. God says, speak, and they speak. If the angels, who are mighty, worship the Lord Almighty, shouldn't we worship Him? He moves outward by scope in verse 21. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts... You ministers of his who do his pleasure. We go from the angels who are his messengers to the hosts of God, his armies. This is the military wing of heaven. They are his servants. They do whatever he tells them to do. They serve the king. They do his pleasure. And they're the armies of God, the hosts of God. These are not the messengers, these are the hosts, these are the warriors. We tend to use the word angel to talk about every spiritual being, but the Bible doesn't use it that way. The Bible talks about spiritual beings and hosts of heaven. It talks about angels as being part of those. But the hosts are the armies of heaven. These are the armies that Elisha saw on the hills when he told his servant, more are with us than are with them. And God pulled back the veil from his servant's eyes and he saw the hosts of heaven. These are the hosts of heaven that were on the side of the hills there in Bethlehem when they came and spoke to those shepherds. And said, glory to God in the highest. These are the hosts of God. And then he talks about his works, his visible created beings, everything. He steps out one more time in verse 22. One more step back to bless the Lord, all his works and all his places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Everything made could be considered a work of God, including you. He says the places of His dominion. We're talking about heaven, earth, on the earth, under the earth. Everything should bless the Lord. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus, the Son, made all things for His own glory. By Him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. What do you think He's talking about? Spiritual beings. All things were created through Him and for Him. God made you for Himself. The created world exists for the glory of God. The created world exists to give praise, honor, and glory to God, to worship God. In fact, His works include everything He has created. Psalm 150, the last verse in the Psalms, calls for everything that has breath to praise the Lord. Do you have breath today? If you can breathe, you can praise God. If you can breathe, God has called you to praise Him. But everything that has breath... Praise the Lord. Worship is so much more than music on a stage, than a production on TV. Worship involves the inner man, the internal man. Some of us have been skidding by the week just to get into church on Sunday, and we enjoy this, but we don't ever allow God's Word to penetrate our hearts. We have an outer shell that reflects any, any, kind, of, uh, uh, any kind of work that God is doing. It, it, it repels it to worship God is to come ready to worship and ready to receive. Secondly, worship must be God-centered, and, and we cannot ever be man-centered. We cannot do that because worship has to be focused on God. Worship that takes its eyes off God and off His character misses what worship is supposed to be. We, we enthrone God. Third, worship is submission to God that honors him as the king of all, it dethrones the self and the idols that have placed themselves on our hearts that center our life. What we center our life around must be dethroned and God must be put there. Because true worship acknowledges God's right to demand much of me. God can tell me who I am. God can tell me what I should do. God can tell me where I should go. God has the right to do that because he is my king. So in your heart, I call you today, bow before the King of heaven and worship him as the one who deserves to be worshipped. As he finishes this chapter, he ends where he begins. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. I wonder would you praise the Lord, would you bless the Lord and worship him with your whole being. Father, we ask You today as You convict us now of our weaknesses, our sins, Lord, I pray we would exalt You for who You are, not lose sight of Your greatness and Your forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray that there's someone here today, as I mentioned earlier, who does not yet know You, who is still in their sins, who stands condemned because they have not trusted in Jesus and asked Him to forgive them and receive Him. Into their lives, as they had the person who has not done that, Lord, I pray that today would be the day where they are willing to do that. Where they recognize you are the King, you deserve this praise, and they may not fully understand all this involves, but Lord, that they would humble themselves and say, Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, and that He died for my sins. And Father, I pray also for our own hearts, the many Christians who are gathered here today who claim to worship you that you would reignite in our hearts a desire and a spark to worship you like we should, to give all that we have to worship you and declare your greatness, because you are the great and wonderful God, and we should do what you call us to do.